Hello, my name is Chris Stewart, and on behalf of my good friend Patrick Martin and this podcast, we would like to thank you for devoting your time, investing your time, listening to this podcast, and we hope, as always, that it is an inspiration to you. We hope it's an encouragement to you. We hope that on this episode today, you will be challenged, it will be thought-provoking, and that you would go out and be a better person from having listened to this. Because that's always our mission and our goal each and every time we sit behind these microphones. We thank you and we welcome you to The Coaching Life, episode number 74. Morning, Coach. Good morning, Coach. How's it going? Business administrator. Your coach, your coach slash business administrator slash Mr. Resourceful, just just jack of all trades over there. Well, I don't I don't feel very resourceful this morning. It's it's not Victory Monday. What stadium are you in there on your Zoom call? Oh, What's this your is, background. Is that the Jake? This is a, well, no, no, it's progressive, right? It used to be the Jake. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's progressive stadium. No, uh, yeah, yeah. You're right. You're right. With the Browns' loss, so it's a sad day. So you're back to baseball. Back to baseball, right? <laughs> Every day is baseball. Try to make myself feel better. Yeah. Coach, in 1973, March 31st, 1973, Muhammad Ali fought a guy named Ken Norton. And the story goes that in the first round of that fight, Ken Norton punched Ali so hard he broke his jaw. When Ali went to the corner, his manager, which at the time was Angelo Dundee, noticed that he had this real real bright red blood coming out of his mouth, and he knew from experience, I guess, when you break your jaw, you bleed, bleed bright red, I guess. I don't know. But uh, he knew that Ali's jaw was broken. And he, told, you know, he said, we, we have to stop the fight. You cannot continue the fight with a broken jaw. And Ali said, don't, don't stop the fight. He said, the only thing I have to do to win is suffer. I think a lot of times in sports, we, uh, we overlook uh, our, our opportunities to be great. We overlook our opportunities um, to recognize the challenge in front of us, you know, and, and we see failure. We see, we see difficulty. We see uh, tough times. And, and sometimes we collapse under that challenge. And it's a lesson that we can learn from sports, but it's, 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 um, it's a scenario that we'll face uh, not just as athletes, but, you know, as coaches and as parents and as people as we go through this life. And we mentioned, uh, I think this was last week you know, on our episode, or I mentioned that you, you, there's a story out there that mm-hmm. that we need to tell or that you need to tell. Yeah, and, it was uh, just last week. So I'm excited today that, that uh, we, get to, we get to share what I think is just an amazing story yeah. uh, with our listeners out there. And, uh, I'll turn it over to you to 
to fill in any background you want to you want to start with. Well, first of all, that's a great story about Muhammad Ali. I'd had to, I had never heard that before. Well, there, there's some. I have, there's some, uh, I have there's, to suffer in order to succeed. I'm going to keep that one with me today. Yeah, that's all a, I have to really do to win rich. is suffer. Yeah, all I have to do to win is suffer. That's really, really rich. Here's the here's the other part of it. He lost. Hmm. He lost in the 11th round. He lost. Yeah, but that that's the. He he may have lost the fight. He may have lost the match, but man. Yes. He really won. Yeah, you're right. Because the mentality right. the mentality makes you is really what makes the man. I tell you what, that that's that's good stuff right there. Yeah, definitely. Well, on the same line, years ago I read a book, um, or a while back, I don't know how many years ago it was. It actually wasn't that long ago. I read a book and it was titled Tough Times Never Last, but Tough People Do. And it was written by a man named Robert Schuler. And Robert Schuler, if, if any of our listeners don't know who that is, he was the pastor of the Crystal Cathedral. So years ago, there used to be, I mean, there used to be a lot of televangelists on TV years ago. I, I don't know. They might still be out there somewhere. I don't get those channels anymore. Um, yeah, you don't see them as much. No, you don't. You don't, you don't. When we had fewer channels, there was... It seemed like there was a different day, you know, Saturdays or whatever. There were, there, you know, and certainly on Sundays there were people on on TV preaching, and a lot of, honestly, a lot of the televangelists were just. I, we won't get into that. I, <laughs> just, just crap. I mean, just well, yeah, false, is, false teaching in a lot of way. But Robert Schuler had some solid stuff, though. I mean, he, granted, he built a huge, a huge building called the Crystal Cathedral, which is a little misguided, I think. But, but, but still, uh, anyway, he, good man. Good man uh, died uh, ten or so years ago, I believe. But he wrote a book, and in the book he told a story about one time he was scheduled to speak. Now this is after his he had reached some fame and some popularity, and so he had written several books on on uh, personal motivation and you know positivity and and also you know of course th- things with Christian themes as well. But he was very a very good speaker, very motivational person. And so he was invited to speak to 3,500 members of the agriculture industry. And this was the harsh summer of 1982. Now, you don't remember that summer, Pat. And I was 10 years old during that summer. But I honestly don't remember what it was like. I'm sure it was pretty harsh. Probably It was really dry and really hot. And, and it was just a, a sort of a drought. And so for many people in that time, it felt like kind of like the clocks had rolled back to the 1930s and the Great Depression. As, you, as I read back and, and, and hear some of the testimonies from that day, it was wild to read about how companies were declaring bankruptcy every single day and unemployment numbers were soaring through the roof. And at the time, the media, which was not nearly as, as uh, permeating in society as it is today, if you can imagine... Uh, but the media was calling it a severe and prolonged recession. Mm. And it caused waves of depression across our country, across America. Not unlike what people are going through today. And uh, so I think that's why this, this is relevant. And I also think this is a, a very relevant thing for us to be talking about on the, uh, the week of, uh, of our election. I mean, I almost said the biggest election in our country's history. That's just simply not true. Our country has had big, 
Every four years, it's a big election, and and it just gets it's it's the most hyped election probably in our country's history, but maybe even not that. I don't know. That's We're not true. The next one will probably be bigger. Yeah, exactly. So. Exactly. Yeah. So anyway, when Schuler arrived at the Hilton Hotel in downtown Chicago, where he was going to speak to this uh, group of thirty five hundred uh, people, the members of the agricultural industry, he was greeted by two representatives of the group and. He had expectations, of course, of a warm, inspirational evening, <laughs> as, as always when you go and speak like that at, a, at an event. But those expectations were uh, abruptly changed by this greeting of the two men. After they exchanged preliminary greetings, Dr. Schuler was informed of their expectations. 3,500 people in that room next door, he was told, were going through really, really tough times. And one of the men said to him, Dr. Schuller, these people are going through tough times and they don't want to hear your funny stories. They don't want to see you grinning from ear to ear like you do on television every week. They don't want to have a pat on the back from you with a hollow promise that everything's going to be okay. Just hang in there. And then the other man added, they need help. They need hope. Go give it to them. And so... I would like to, with your permission, Pat, and with the permission of our listeners, of course, I'd like to read some from this book, just some passages from this book, just to sort of tell this story today, and, and maybe we can spend a, a couple minutes summarizing it when, when I'm done. Is that cool? Sure. Perfect. Well, as uh, Dr. Schuler stepped out there on the stage, and he began to speak to that uh, packed-to-capacity room in that day, he decided that he would set aside his prepared message and he would tell them a little bit about his life, his own life personally, having grown up on a farm himself. He was not ignorant to what these men were going through, these men and women. And so this is going to be spoken from Dr. Schuler's perspective as I speak from a first-person perspective reading passages from this book. Farming life has never been easy. My boyhood farm was a typical Midwestern farm. That meant it was small. The industry was not simple crop farming. The crops were harvested and fed to livestock. Chickens laid the eggs, which were traded for groceries. Cows grazed the grassland along the river that was too difficult to plow. We milked the cows and then sold the milk. When the hogs reached their prime weight, they were sold at market. It was a one crop a year farm. That meant that we planted the oats and the corn in the springtime and harvested it in the fall to be gathered into barns and saved for feed for the hogs. The winter season was merely a time of survival, waiting and hoping for spring. My father purchased our farm when prices were at their peak. Real estate had been climbing steadily. I was born only a few years later. This was September 16th of 1926. How my father saved enough to buy our farm is a story in and of itself. Because he lost his parents as a teenager, dad was forced to drop out of school in the sixth grade and find the only job that he could as a hired hand for the local farmers. One could always husk corn, rip each single golden ear from its nest of leaves, crack off the six-foot stem and throw it into a wagon. You didn't need an education to do that. So my father was a thrifty young man and he was able to save a few nickels and dimes that he earned each year from all the corn he picked. Finally, he had saved up enough to purchase a 160-acre farm. 
Unfortunately, he bought it at the top of the price cycle. And when I was three years old, the Great Depression hit. Real estate prices plummeted along with the stocks. While internationally famed corporate chiefs were committing suicide in Wall Street, lonely farmers, America's original small businessmen, were clinging with broken fingernails to the earth, just hoping to survive. And my father was one of those tough, tenacious farmers. Winter was the worst of all. I shall never forget the times when we did not have money to buy coal. The trees that surrounded the house were considered precious living creatures that could not be sacrificed for fuel. So we never considered cutting them down and sawing them up for the wood-burning stove. Instead, it became my job as a child to step over the three-foot-high splintered wooden fence and climb into the hog yard among the, the 100 squirming, squealing hogs. And with an empty basket, I maneuvered my way through the excrement, picking up every corn cob that was left after the hogs had consumed the kernels. Not a single cob was left uncollected. Every single one of them was considered of real value. And when the basket was filled, I'd carefully carry it to the tiny two-story white sideboard home where my mother and father, brothers and sisters, all lived with me. The corn cobs would fuel the stove in the kitchen. They would also be used in the potbelly stove in the little living room. And these were the only two sources of heat in the house. Little grills in the ceiling allowed some of the heat to pass from downstairs in, in the living room to the upstairs bedrooms. But cracks in the walls let in just as much freezing cold air. So at that point, Robert Schuler looks out over the crowd and he asks them a question. He says, do you want to hear about my experience with poverty? I said to the struggling 3,500 businessmen seated in that carpeted ballroom of the plush Hilton Hotel, let me tell you about poverty. I was so poor that we had to use corn cobs to heat our homes to keep from freezing to death in sub-zero winters. We used corn cobs because we could not afford coal. Those were tough times. I said. And then I recalled the years of the great drought. Even as the economic depression ravaged the country, the Iowa farmers fought a far tougher battle. For reasons we never understood, the normal spring rainfall never came to moisten the newly planted corns and oats that year. The few precious dollars that my father was able to save had to be spent on seed corn. I always wondered how he dared to risk throwing that seed into the ground where it might rot and die when he could safely bring it to town and convert it to cash. Why take a chance? I once asked my father. Why don't you just play it safe and sell it? People who never take a chance, he taught me wisely, never get ahead. Mm. Of course, there's no success without the application of the multiplication principle. It was a natural, native, basic principle that every farmer understood. And so in the springs of 1931, 1932, and 1933, my father took all that he had left, the last kernels of corn, the last cups of oats, and planted them in the ground of his small Iowa farm, expecting that the rains would fall. He hoped that those seeds would become wet and bloated until they erupted with new life, sending their tender little sprouts up through the softened spring soil Light green rows of corn would begin to grow and stand out against the black background of the dark Iowa ground. You see, rainfall is essential to a farmer's success. And Iowa farmers can expect it to rain at least once every other week. 
If for some reason the rains did not fall for three or four weeks, then one inch of the topsoil would dry out first. And then if the rain did not come still, the soil would gradually grow dry at the two, three, four, five inches deep until hair-like tentacles of the roots of the new corn plants would begin to die. The first evidence of the death of the roots would be a wilted leaf. But when the rains did not fall for two weeks, my father was worried. When the third or fourth week passed with no rain, I saw his face grow very grave. Not once did he become angry. Never did he miss praying with bowed head at the table before our morning, noon, or nighttime meals. The only thing my father did about the drought was pray. That was the only thing he could do. Farmers gathered from miles around at special prayer meetings, filling the little white churches that dotted the rolling landscapes. Out of respect and reverence to the Almighty God, each farmer came, not in his overalls, but, but in his one and only suit and tie, and they would call upon God Almighty to save their land and their crops. They asked him to send rain. And then all they could do was go home and wait for the answer. For a whole year, the Lord was silent. Day after day, the sun bore down on our crops. Every day, we thirstily scanned the scorching sky for a sign of a cloud. And more than once, I ran into the house calling out as a child, I've seen a cloud. God may be answering our prayer today. But that cloud always would dissipate. Finally, as if in fact our prayers were being answered, there was a gathering of clouds and hopes began to rise again. The desperately needed rainfall was moving in from the west. Flashes of lightning slashed through the black sky and thunder cracked and the trees trembled with fright as the wind whipped through their branches and it rained. I was jubilant, but my father did not share my enthusiasm and neither did my mother because they knew what I did not know. The rain was totally inadequate. When the last thunderclap echoed in the distance, signaling the passing of the storm, the sun came out bright and hot again, and we walked outdoors. My father scooped up a handful of the wet, moistened, soft uh, soil. Only the top quarter of an inch was wet and black, but below that the earth was powdery dry still. When the winds began to blow from where we did not know, the sky turned from bright blue to a dab gray to a dirty brown. And the clean, bright air that I enjoyed breathing as a child suddenly became polluted with dust. Mm. So now we had wind and drought. <laughs> That's South Dakota land you're breathing, son, my father said. Well, South Dakota, the state that bordered Iowa on the northwest, was suffering a worse drought than Iowa. It didn't even enjoy the sporadic showers that moistened the, the top surface of the soil like we did. The barren land devoid of any vegetation lay helpless before the gathering winds. They swept the feathery particles of the earth high into the sky, carrying them hundreds of miles to the east. Like drifts of snow dust settled on our farm. When the winds blew harder, the dust sandblasted the few rows of corn that had managed to survive the drought. The fragile young plants wilted and weakened for want of refreshing water. They were no match for the grit driven by the hot winds. There was total devastation. Here and there, like bones of a dead animal, dead corn stalks protruded above the drift of the dry sand. And still, the wind just did not cease. It became common procedure for my brother, sisters, and me to cover our faces with wet cloths as we walked the short distance from our house to the outdoor toilet. 
When we walked to the well where we'd hoped we would be able to pump some water for the, from the 40-foot reservoir, we would have to protect ourselves from the suffocating dust with our moistened masks. Our water became more and more scarce as the meandering snake of a river just dried up. The Floyd River had been my closest childhood friend. On its green banks near open pastures, I would lie down watching the clouds change shape in the blue sky. It was there that I always felt closest to my creator. But during the summer of the great drought, I watched the river dry up. Little pools of water became mud holes where squirming bullhead catfish died. We were surrounded by death. The river was dead, the fish were dead, and most importantly, the crops were dead. And summer finally gave way to fall. Newspapers nationwide proclaimed that the Midwest Farm Belt had become a total disaster. Even the New York bankers and corporate chiefs became concerned about a plague that was as great, if not greater, than their own economic depression. The breadbasket of America was in complete ruins. If it had been a normal year, my father would have expected to harvest corn that would fill dozens of wagons. Well, that year, my father harvested barely a half a wagon of corn, grown on a half acre of ground. In a normal year, this swampy lot fed by some mysterious underground spring was too wet to produce any fruit at all. My father had often thought about digging deep into that plot to drain the subsurface of that water away. But now, in the year of the drought, this small plot of ground was the only parcel out of 160 acres where the corn had survived. Here, the corn had actually lived, drawing enough moisture from the, a subterranean source where the corn would grow nearly six feet tall. Here, we harvested the minuscule crop. It was only a half a wagon of corn. A total disaster? Well, not quite. For half a wagon of corn was better than none at all, as my dad said. In fact, it was equal to the amount of seed that had been sowed earlier that year. So a total loss? No. We gained nothing, but most importantly, we lost nothing. I'll never forget my father's dinnertime prayer that night. He said, Dear Lord, I thank you that I have lost nothing this year. You have given me back my seed. Thank you. Well, not all farmers had as much faith as my father did. For sale signs began to appear on farm after farm. Discouraged farmers who couldn't imagine that things would just would ever get better. They would just pack up and leave and abandon their land. Other farmers simply threw their hands up in the air in despair and allowed the bank to foreclose on them. More than one piece of property sold on the courthouse steps. Years later, I asked my father how he had survived and why he didn't do the same. I mean, after all, he had no cash reserves. He had no rich relatives. My father told me I went to the bank and I promised them that if they would help me, somehow I'd return their money. I pleaded with them to refinance, rearrange the mortgage, postpone the due date. And for some reason... The bank believed in me, and it helped. I remember that bank. I have early childhood memories of going in there in patched overalls with my father. I recall seeing this slogan on a calendar in that bank. Great people are ordinary people with extraordinary amounts of determination. I'm convinced that that slogan exemplified the positive attitude that my father 
had and inspired those bankers to go along with him and give him an extension on his mortgage payment. And that slogan was an explanation of my father and his success, and it's an inspiration to me to continue to attempt the impossible. I also had dreams of my own. I wanted to go to college and seminary. And some years later, on a quiet June afternoon, the tornado struck. Let me tell you about the tornado. I was in college. I had come back to visit, and I had not unpacked my suitcases. Having returned only a few days before the summer recess from my college studies, throughout the afternoon, my dad and I could hear an awesome roar reverberating like the hum of a mighty organ. The eerie sound was like many freight trains just rumbling above the threatening and gathering clouds. Sounds like we're in for a hailstorm, my dad murmured. In a desperate attempt to protect his prized roses, we rounded up empty pails and wooden boxes to cover every treasured bush. It was six o'clock now. We had finished our evening meal in haste. From the vantage point of our front lawn, we could see more than a mile across the rolling farmland. The sun was lost now, seemingly swallowed up by the black, monstrous storm that was prowling the western sky. Slowly, with alarming stillness, like a tiger crawling up on a sleeping prey, the storm crept closer. Gusts of hot wind blew the dry dust of the country road. The old box elder bent before the, the mounting winds. Out in the pasture, a cow bellowed frantically, frantically calling her little calf to come to her, to her side for safety. My riding horse seemed to sense the impending disaster. He cut a commanding picture just standing erect with his head held high and graceful neck arched, his tail lifted slightly, fanning in the wind. His ears searched the air for sounds of danger. And suddenly a black lump about the size of the sun bulged out from the black sky. In an instant, it telescoped to the ground in a long gray funnel. For a moment, it just hung suspended like a slithering serpent about to strike to death its helpless victims below. Dad called to my mom. It's a tornado, Jenny. I asked excitedly, are you sure it's a real tornado, Dad? My first emotion was delightful excitement. This would be something to tell the fellows when I'd return back to college in the fall. Well, the funnel seemed so small, I couldn't imagine the fury that could be unleashed from such a small funnel cloud. Call mother, son, and tell her to take whatever she can grab and come to the car. We've got to get out of here right away. Well, a moment later, we were driving crazily down the road. We lived on the east end of a dead end, on a dead end road, and had to drive a mile west directly into the path of the oncoming tornado in order to reach a side road that led south away from the path of the storm. We made it, thankfully. Two miles south, we parked our car on the crest of the hill and watched the wicked twister spin its, ki spin its killing power. As quickly and as quietly as it had dropped, it lifted and disappeared. It was all over. The storm was gone. The air was deathly still. But the danger was past. Gentle raindrops now began to fall, and the tail end of a dark sky dropped a soothing shower of cool rain as if heaven were pouring a soothing balm on fresh wounds. We could go home now. Oh God, will we find our house? That was our prayer. But we reached the crossroads only to find a long line of cars, curious sightseers, 
sensing that something terrible had just happened. They were already gathering to look, and they were looking at the complete destruction of a neighboring farm. Well, wondering if our house had been spared, we drove down the lonely road and crisscrossed wires broken off of telephone poles toward our secluded farm. We came to the base of the hill that hid the view of our house. Before, we'd been able to see the peak of our barn, but not now. We knew before we went over the hill that our barn was gone. Well, now we were on the top of the hill, and we saw it. Everything was gone. Where only a half hour before, there had been nine buildings, freshly painted. Now there were none. Where there had been life, there was only the silence of death. It was all gone. All dead. Only white foundations remained, lying on a clean patch of black ground. There was no debris. Everything had simply been sucked up and carried away. Three little tiny pigs, still living, suckled the breasts of their dead mother lying in the driveway. We could hear the sickening moan of dying cattle, the hiss of gas escaping from a portable tank of butane used to provide fuel for our stove. And then I saw my riding horse lying dead with a 14-foot-long two-by-four piercing his belly. Dazed, our brains were reeling. We sat in our car. My father was past 60 years old and had worked hard for 26 years to try to win this farm. The mortgage was about due. And this seemed to kill all chances of ever saving the place from the creditors. And I looked at my dad, sitting horror-stricken, white-haired, underweight from overwork, his hands blue, desperately gripping the steering wheel. Suddenly, those calloused hands with their bulging blood vessels began hitting the steering wheel of the car. And Dad cried, It's all gone, Jenny. It's all gone, Jenny. 26 years, Jenny, and it's all gone in 10 minutes. Then Dad got out of the car, ordering us to wait and walk with his cane around the clean-swept, tornado-vacuumed farmyard. We later found out that our house had been dropped in one smashed piece about a half a mile in the pasture. We had a little sign on the kitchen wall, a little molded plaster motto, and its simple verse said this, Keep looking to Jesus. Well, my dad found and carried to the car the broken top half of that sign, which just said, keep looking. Well, this was God's message to Dad. Keep looking. Keep looking. Don't quit now. Don't sell out. Dig in and hold on. And that's exactly what my dad did. People thought my dad was finished, but he was not. He was not finished because he would not give up. He had faith with hanging on power. And there's one ingredient that mountain-moving faith, miracle-generating faith, earth-shaking faith, problem-solving faith, and situation-changing faith must have. And that ingredient is holding power. And so Dad didn't quit. Two weeks later, we found a nearby town and an old house that was being torn down. 
a section of it was available for sale for $50. So we bought this remnant and took it apart piece by piece. We saved every nail and every shingle. And from these pieces, we built a new little house on the old, on the old home farm. One by one, additional farm buildings were built. Nine farms were demolished in that tornado, but my father was the only farmer to rebuild a completely demolished farm. A few years later, prices rose sharply. Farm products began to prosper, and within five years, the mortgage was paid off, and my father died a successful man. And at that point, Robert Schuler looked out over the audience of 3,500 modern-day farmers and members of the Agricultural Society, and he said to them, So, I hear you're having tough times. Are they tougher times than my father experienced? I look deep into the eyes and the hearts of the new generation of Iowa farmers. Are you burning corn cobs for fuel? Have you lost everything in a tornado? Is the mortgage due and the cash not there? Are you tempted to walk away and put the place up for sale? Then let me tell you something about tough times. Because I believe I have walked the path and have earned the right to comment on tough times. So let me tell you something about tough times. Tough times never last. Tough people do. And that is what we call on the Coaching Life podcast, good stuff. had goosebumps as you're reading that, even though I knew <laughs> Where it was I, I've heard the story before. It's just, it, you could take any part, you know, there, there's, there's multiple trials in that story, you know, and they're, and they're all, they all could be considered, you know, huge challenges. Mm-hmm. And they, at, 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 at each of them, they could be challenges that would cause people to give up. Or you know, at at least to uh, to really stress over the situation and, and and lament over you know the situation or the circumstance that they find themselves in. But you know, I think there's value in understanding something about life, and that is that everybody experiences challenges Mm. you know we i think uh social media has has almost done a disservice to our society by um often presenting a a um a reality that 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 is uh that really doesn't exist and that and when i say that i mean that oftentimes when we when we're scrolling through social media we're seeing um we're seeing the best times or at least the uh, uh, the 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 provided picture <laughs> of yeah. the best times, and what that takes from us is an understanding that as individuals, as people, as human beings, we're built, we're made to endure things, we're made to overcome things, and this story is amazing. And the fact that, you know, what was overcame, but 
there's no doubt hundreds of stories just like mm-hmm. these from the from the same time period, you know, and it's amazing to us. I think, or we wouldn't say inflate necessarily, but we uh, we adore these types of stories because they're they're stories of of perseverance and and um, you know of overcoming challenge, almost as if because we see them sometimes as impossible challenges, right? In our lives, right. we see, uh, we see them as challenges that we can't overcome. And, and I, you know, I, that's, that's true in life and it's true in sports. And we see it on our, on our athletes faces. We see it on our parents faces and our coaches faces at different times that, you know, there's, there's mistakes that happen that in that moment, in that, in that, in that in that game and you know in that inning in that quarter we recognize that we might not be able to overcome that 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 uh, that mistake or that failure or that challenge and i think the the lesson that i want people to hear out of this great story is that there's always hope and if we approach if we approach things as if one, it's not a surprise that it happened. Yeah, we've talked about that yep. before. We know we know these these times are going to come to us. They come to all of us. If we approach them knowing that it's not a surprise, and knowing that we have the capability to survive them, to overcome them in some way, it makes us all better. Right. And I just think we need to, I need to, we need to believe. I think one of the lessons out of this, maybe one of the lessons that Schuler was trying to give to these 3,500 people is we need to believe that that same resilience mm. that was in his father 50, 60 years ago or more is, yes. is in all of us. It really is. And, and yeah. we've got to be able to dig down and grab a hold of it and find it. I mean, it's a toughness. Then that's the whole point. It's the whole title of the book is that, look, I know it's tough. And I know, I know sometimes things are so tough that we just want to throw our hands up. We want to give in. We want to give up. We just want to say, I can't do this anymore. I, I'm, you know, we want to change course of some, for something. But you can be tougher than this tough thing, whatever that thing is. You can be. You really can be. And I think that's one of the main things out of that is, look, man, you can all we, you can all do it. You can all have the same resilience. It's in you. It's there. You just got to tap. You got to find it. You got to dig down deep and find it. It's not going to yeah. be easy. Resil- doesn't mean it's easy. It just means be tough. Absolutely. And I think there's a there's an element of willingness to it that you know you 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 have to be able to know and mm-hmm. I guess I don't know that uh, you know well yeah I guess everybody has a different uh, outlook on um, on I guess what I would say uh, origin <laughs> human origin but sure. re- regardless regardless of where that comes from um, you should believe that. I, I hear that you know I, my uh, my family's hunters. They've always been big time hunters, and mm-hmm. uh, 
they'll tell stories about you know seeing the big buck and and missing it or you know hit, you know shooting it shooting the buck and the buck goes runs over the hill and they're, they're, they track it for you know hours and hours and go back the next day and track and they you know they they see the trail they just can't they just can't find the deer and they talk about this the way that deer or the wildlife animals have this will to live this will mm-hmm. to survive you know it's like it's like this natural thing that they have a super super power that that you know that wild animals have to survive and and the fact of the matter is we have that as well you know yeah. we we have that that will we just like you said we have to tap into it and uh, we have to trust that uh that we're going to make it through you know the tough times that we experience yeah yeah and it, you know it's such a great lesson for for us for a sports related podcast i think because we you know in in games you 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 fail often and you find yourself in tough situations and often the 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 people that are able to succeed as an athlete or as a team or the the team the, you know the people in the teams that aren't um they're not bothered yeah by situations that other teams or other people might be uh, might find uh more difficult than others you know and yeah. and you know we can we can bring that back to a lot of things that we've talked about in the past such as you know complaining or mm-hmm. uh, blaming or excuse making you know things like that but um yeah yeah it's a uh, when you know when you think of tough times in a sports related context it's it it it's i think you almost have to think about it in terms of a season or several seasons or one or two seasons, you know, one or two that, that it's just like, wow. It, it, Cause it, the, that, when you start to feel like, wow, it's tough. It's one thing to have a tough game or a tough outing, but to have it happen again and again and again and again, that's when you start to go, Oh gosh, do I really want to stay in this coaching thing? Do I want, should I just give up playing? Should I just give up? And, you know, and, and the reality is, yeah, it's going to be, there are tough times do exist. <laughs> and, and those who are tougher, make it through those who, those who battle through, they, they, they they're fine. You know, they'll be fine. Yeah, absolutely. And if you think about it, you know, we talk the, uh, the way that you broke that down there, you know, we talk about, maybe we'll say this from a baseball perspective, we say a pitch, you know, an mm-hmm. out, an inning, a game, yeah, a week of games, <laughs> yeah. a season, um, Usually, those are the, those. That's kind of our scope when we're talking when we're right. when we're evaluating failures and we're evaluating mishaps as as coaches and as athletes. But you know, sometimes we can have injuries that that impact sure. multiple seasons, right? But well, I guess what I'm getting at is even even from an athletic perspective, those those small periods, those small increments that we're that we're dealing with, the periods, they um they end up turning into life periods right so mm-hmm. when, when, we, when we're thinking about you know what happened on that last pitch we should we should find solace and strength in the fact that there's still a lot more waiting for us beyond that last pitch right yeah, there's yeah. still a lot more waiting for us beyond this game beyond this season and uh no that's what you know that's what that's what uh we you know we opened with the story from ali that's what his mindset was at that time, 
And that's what this farmer's mindset is, uh, you know, just he would not allow himself to give up sure. on, on the process, I would say. And, um, you know, to go back to your Ali story just for a second, because you said that he ended up losing that fight. Yeah. After he said that uh, if he didn't suffer, he would never win. Yeah. Well, the truth of that statement is he knew it was going to be suffering to go out, to go back out there the way he was. Absolutely. But he, but he at least had a shot of winning. If yeah. he didn't go back out, there was no shot at winning. He was going to yeah. lose regardless. And so what do we want to do? I mean, I, I mean, that's just a that's just a story of not giving up. No matter, even if you know that when you go back out there, there's probably not a good chance you're going to win. Go and fight. Get up and fight. Yeah, that's a good point. Ollie and Norton fought three times. And Norton beat him the first time, and Ollie won the next yeah, two. There you go. So, and that, that first fight, I believe, went split decision. Oh, so really? That, yeah. So it went, it went to decision. Down to the wire, then. So he, 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 he survived the bout, right? He did. He didn't win, but he survived the bout. But, you know, he's Ali's known as by many as the greatest boxer of all times. You know, that that mentality is required. It is required to make you great <laughs> for sure. Well, coach, I know you've got to go to a meeting here in just a minute. And so we, we probably need to summarize it and. We just need to tell all of our listeners out there that, listen, if you're part of our community, if you're part of this Coaching Life podcast, whether you just started listening today for the first time or you've listened to us regularly, we just want to tell you that there's no room for you to not toughen it out if you're part of this podcast. Because, listen, tough times don't last. Tough people do. And we want all of our people to grasp that and to, be, and to just determine today, I'm going to be that. You know, Like, for example, just real quick. Elections coming up this week, right? You know what's going to happen the day after the election, Pat? Oh boy, I, no, I've got I a don't. prediction. <laughs> I've got, I've got, a, I'll, I've got a prediction that I know is going to be absolutely true. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't be a hundred percent true. I got to leave a little bit of a space for for the Lord to come back here. But you know what? The sun's going to come up. Oh, the sun call. is going to rise, and mm. we're going to our country is going to be here, yeah. despite what some people think. Our countries turn off all your social media people because that's the only place where you're learning that this is that this is a total disaster. Because I go and I walk around up here in you know, where I live, and people are my neighbors lo are friendly. We love each other, whether whether we have Biden signs or Trump signs or Joe Jorgensen signs or whoever you might be voting for signs in your yard, which I don't have any signs in my yard. But we love each other and we're gonna be just fine. We're gonna continue with our lives. We're gonna learn from this. We're gonna work hard. We're gonna love our friends and love our family. We're gonna to contribute to our communities like we always do. And that's going to be true if the election goes the way you want it to go. And it's also gonna be true if the election doesn't go the way you want it to go. And that's what it means to me to be an American. Not any of those other bull crap that you see posted on frickin' social media. Can you tell that I'm about dumb with social media? I'm just going to post our <laughs> podcast, and that's about it. I'm about that's done with it because it's so freaking negative that I'm just I, I'm I'm tired of it. I'm tired of it. We we can start posting the podcast on a website. 
just have people filter there. Well, it is. I mean, technically, it is on a website. It's on our anchor site. Anchor is the host, and so that's that's true. that's. I mean, but yeah, I mean, just to get it out there in as many hands as possible, I like to put that link on there. But it is possible to actually go and post something and then turn it off. Maybe I just need to de- unfollow every single person that I follow and just post it out there. And, and I've already done that. Th- yeah. <laughs> Good deal. Good deal. Yeah, you know, I, I would follow that up by saying that uh, for as long as I've lived, I, I believe that I, I've lived in the greatest country in the world. And I still believe that. And I, I, I thank God that I believe that. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I think it's true. So I, I do, too, Pat. I, I do, too. I, I do not buy. I do not buy the narrative that we are a divided country. I just don't buy that. And I mean, yeah, there, there are some problems, but we are United States. We are a united country. We're more accepting. We're more compassionate and integrated than, than we have ever been. If you look around, I mean, the truth is, we, I mean, there are, it does not mean that there are not still problems. When you say right. that, someone immediately pushes back and says, oh, but there's still racism and there's still uh, people who don't accept other people of other beliefs. I know that we're never yeah. getting rid of that. Because yeah, we're, the vision, we're never getting rid of that. But we are today more accepting than we've ever been, ever been in the history of this nation. We are not a country that's being torn apart by that. And you can point at, uh, you can point at a leader, one person, one man of our nation and say, oh, it's his fault or it's that person's fault. Listen, if, if one person allows you to feel that way, you got a problem. Mm. I'm sorry. If you're putting that much stake in a president of our country, you know what? Go get a life. Go get a life because you're, you're relying too much on one man. And he or she, whoever ends up being, they're not going to do anything for you that's going to really cause your heart to be where it needs to be every single day when you wake up. That, that's you. You've got to do that. That's if you're a good re- point. Yeah. That's why we got to put this stuff down, man. I, I'm telling you, we got to put we got to put these things down that we're reading. That's getting us to believe in all this government. We allow that to shape our perception, right? Yeah, yeah. We're yes. You got. We need, to, we need to shape that more from within. Yeah. Instead of allow, allowing external external forces to right to hit us. So I know this is you know it does feel like tough times, and so I think this is relevant. But you know what? Just just be tougher. Be tougher because you'll last, even though the tough time will not. It might feel like it's here forever, but it won't. It'll go away. And tough times will be there. Tough people will be there waiting to pick up the pieces for everyone else who may be almost, almost lost it during the tough times. Yeah. It was good to talk to you today. You too, Coach. A little different podcast for us, a little different episode for us. I bet, I bet it gets a lot of listens. It might. It might. I think it stays true to our mission. I went back and listened to our very first episode ever, episode number one, this past weekend, and I was really pleased to listen to what you and I outlined as our hope and our goal and our mission for this podcast, because here now, almost two years later, we've, we're, still, we're still rolling with that. I think we're still relevant to that mission. We're still Absolutely. in line with yeah. it. Yeah. Good deal. Maybe maybe closer to the goal now than ever. Yeah. And that <laughs> is a cliffhanger. <laughs> we'll let you all know more about what Pat's talking about maybe in future episodes. Hey, happy November. Second day of November. 
Yeah, you too. Yep. It's Jake Martin's birthday. Happy birthday, Happy birthday Jake. Jake Martin. Yes. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, everyone.